Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with my partner, podcast partner, Steve Crane, and this Hi, is Dan. the Free Zone Frontier. And we've got a guest that I've been dying to have on our podcast because it's a topic intellectual property that I think every entrepreneur in the 21st century ought to become marinated in because it's the key to all growth in the 21st century is uh, turning your ideas into property. Keegan, Keegan Caldwell, great to have you this morning. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Thanks for the nice introduction. And thanks, Steve. I'm, I'm happy to be here today. And it's great to be part of the podcast and the community. And I look forward to sharing whatever I can about uh, IP and how it relates to folks' entrepreneurial journey. Did I lie about the importance of it? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I'll keep that dialed in as we go forward. <laughs> so, Keegan, can you give a little background to how you ended up both as an attorney, but also focusing on intellectual property? Yeah, and it's not a very straightforward path. So I'll try to be, you know, brief and descriptive. But, you know, I don't think that being an intellectual property attorney is something that, you know, my children, for instance, or anyone's children go around thinking, you know, I think I'll be an IP attorney when I grow up, right? It was something that I figured out, you know, much later in life through my own entrepreneurial journey. I started off in the Marine Corps. And after I got out of the Marine Corps, I decided to get an education, use my GI Bill to go to school. I did my undergrad. I went and got a PhD in physical chemistry and focused on batteries and fuel cells. And then uh, while I was doing that, I did a brief internship at the United States Patent and Trademark Office in what they called the Central Re-Exam Unit, which is where they used to kind of resolve some patent conflicts at the patent office. Just for fun. Just for fun. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. While I was doing my PhD. So did that and had an opportunity to look at different large entities, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, all the, you know, Silicon Valley majors and got a taste of it and realized that it was something that I, I wanted to be a part of that kind of entrepreneurial excitement, but I didn't want to do it at the patent office working for the government. So I took a, a job at a law firm and took the patent bar, which I was capable of taking without attending law school. And then also, that's another unique thing about my own personal journey is that I have not attended law school. So in Vermont, California, Virginia, Washington State and one other state, but I can't remember it right now, you can take the state bar exam without going to law school. You know, like Kim Kardashian and Abe Lincoln famously have read the law. Well, actually, Kim has not passed it yet. So I guess it's just Abe and I that I know about. Mm -hmm. Happen to have three daughters. So we watched the Kardashian. She actually did pass it. So she did pass it. Okay, good. All right. Just like, okay. Just last week's episode. Okay. So, you know, I could say uh, here, Keegan, that Steve and Howard Getson are cousins. And they have a third cousin who is one of the world's most famous collegiate experts on Abraham Lincoln, especially the entrepreneurial part of Abraham Lincoln's life. We had a podcast with him, I don't know, six months ago. I didn't hear that one. I'm surprised I missed it. That's great. Um, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Uh, see, when you throw around Abe Lincoln and Kim Kardashian, see what you get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's always kind of a fun thing to throw out because it's very uncommon, you know. And You know, I bet the vast majority of people have no comprehension of what you just said. It's true. You know, that you can actually yeah. just become a specialized, you know, focuser on one area that's ostensibly under the law, but you don't have to go to law school for it. Right. And 
you can do that with the patent bar. You can take the patent bar without going to law school. But the more interesting thing and less common thing is being able to take the state bar also, which then I could, you know, if I really wanted to, I could practice, you know, divorce law or, you know, any other area of law for that matter, real estate, elder law, you know, you name it, I could do that. But I wanted to focus on one thing and, and technology has always fascinated me. And my technology background, you know, led into that. And I started at, when I got done with school, I took a job at a law firm. That's where I began to, you know, study the laws I was talking about and eventually became barred at a state bar level as well. But I was, you know, frustrated and unhappy as a, you know, a high quick start in an environment that wasn't as entrepreneurial as I would have liked it to be. And so I had an opportunity to leave and to start my own practice. And I did that about seven years ago or six and a half years ago. Since then, we've grown, you know, quite a bit. I've been, I start my first office was in Burlington, Vermont, which we still have. Now we have offices in Boston, Santa Monica, and in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a fast growing firm, uh, according to Forbes, you know, oh, yeah. magazine yeah. that pays attention to fast growing companies. And you've shown up very prominently on their list, uh, at least in 2019, 2020, 2021, I think. Yeah. So last year we were named the fastest uh, growing law firm in the United States. And then the year before that, we were the fastest growing IP. We're the second fastest growing law firm, but we're the first fastest growing intellectual property boutique, mm-hmm. you know, firm that's just solely focused on, on IP. And that'll come out again this summer and we expect to do, you know, quite well again, but it's actually probably something that we'll get into a little bit today. It hadn't been a big focus of ours to, you know, be thinking about competition, right? To be thinking about, you know, growing faster than our peers. But it was just something that happened along the way by having a focus on creating new tools and opportunities, both for us as a firm and for our clients Mm -hmm. that snowballed in a way that I never would have dreamed was possible. I certainly didn't think seven years ago that we'd have as many employees as we do today. And now I feel like I'm just limited by my own imagination as to what the future holds. So I'm excited about it. And We'll see where it heads. Well, you've taken an entrepreneurial path all the way through. And having been someone who slogged it through law school to not be a lawyer, but to be an entrepreneur who just had that background, and as my parents would say, an education that can't be taken away, I applaud your entrepreneurial effort all the way through. And I think it's really interesting how you have just really taken an entrepreneurial approach to most of the things that you said that led up to today. And what I think is interesting is how you're connecting with entrepreneurs and innovators and able to do something that a lot of lawyers aren't able to do, which is connect with them and help them in a way that opens up their mind to understanding how important it is what you're helping them kind of work through in terms of IP, in terms of other things. I think you're speaking a language that most entrepreneurs welcome, which is entrepreneurial language versus lawyer language. And I think that's the problem with working with lawyers today is they don't understand the mindset of the entrepreneur. That was one of the the first beautiful synergies that I found out early on when I first started the firm was that we were looking to add some sort of ROI because I was like, the one thing I need to be able to do is to repeat whatever it is that I think I can do, right? The value add that I think that I can add over whatever other firms are. And I also knew that I wanted to do this for a long time. And so I figured that like, you know, you do a bad job for one person, they're going to talk trash about you to to everybody, right? But if you do a good job for 10 people, maybe like one person says something nice. And so, you know, out of the gate, sometimes we'd get some clients that maybe weren't a good fit. And then I didn't think that would have an ROI, but they were like adamant, like we definitely want to get IP on this thing. 
and this goes to your point that it just wasn't part of their, I could see that it wasn't going to be a value add for them as much as I needed, you know, the money at the firm and we needed some revenue at that time, those decisions in the early days to turn folks away, I think ended up being very beneficial for us. And almost all those people ended up coming back down the road that we sent away anyways. And they went to some other firm and, or, you know, went ahead and did it themselves. And they said, Oh, well, that didn't work out. You know, you were right. Sorry. We came back. It wasn't like an, I told you so moment or anything like that. It was really more important for us to find our niches, you know, in my own niche is like an entrepreneur and someone that integrity to the value that I'm going to offer someone rather than just another piece of paper from the patent office is going to sit on your desk that you can't do anything with. Right. Mm-hmm. There has to be some level of value creation. Right. And I think that that was something that I understood early on, but I also think it's something that I'm continuing to learn about because there's always new tools and new value that I can add. And, you know, that's what I love about being an entrepreneur and, and about what I do in IP as well, getting to work with so many creative minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The interesting thing is that I guess the study of law actually acquaints you with the downside, right? You know, there's upside and downside. So in DOS terms, dangers, opportunities, and strengths. One of the things that I value about people who have an acquaintance with law, you know, from studies and taking tests is that they've checked out where the dangers can be for the particular activity that clients are involved in or the marketplace that they're involved in. But where they get caught is their life becomes about the dangers. And I think that people who have spent their whole life in school, oftentimes they get rewarded for pointing out the bad things that can happen and they get fixated on the bad things that can happen. And all the great lawyers that we've had as entrepreneurs and strategic coach did the opposite. They satisfied themselves that they knew what the downside was, but then they went after the opportunity and it got them off billing, off hourly billing, the first thing, and they started doing it on a project basis. So what would you say to that? It's just an observation because I've had a lot of lawyers come into the program and when I was coaching people who were just joining Strategic Coach. I used to sit down with the lawyers, the accountants, the engineers, the architects, everybody who went through it. You kind of decide when you're about 12 years old that you're going to do this, and then you have your entire educational career is geared to something that you're going to get a piece of paper 15 years later. And then, you know, that you have a free pass to prosperity. And what I sat down with them, I said, you know, you have to decide right off the bat, are you a lawyer or are you an entrepreneur who has a law degree? I said, because it's going to make all the difference in the world. If you're a lawyer, this isn't the program for you. But if you're an entrepreneur who happens to have legal training and has uh, legal credentials, I think you're going to find some real exciting possibilities in there. So can the two of you talk about that? Because it seems to me that there's a similarity that the law was important for a certain kind of preparation, but only a certain first or second stage of where you really wanted to be. Absolutely. I'm happy to hop in real quick. So, you know, lawyers are, I say this all the time, you know, they're like an exponentially risk averse group of people. Right. And so, you know, it's like, that's what they're taught is their job when you're, you know, throughout school is you're dissolving liability, right. Maybe even more so than the insurance folks. Right. And so 
but you know, they can probably both be put into a clump together. But in one of my first interviews that I had, I actually interviewed with this guy who was a former Navy SEAL and he started the it was the head of the patent litigation practice at you know one of the largest law firms in the United States, top 10 firm in the world, rather. His name is Max Grant. And he said to me, well, if you want to do this job, this was before I'd had any job at a law firm. And uh, we were discussing our military backgrounds. And he says, well, maybe that this is something that you can do. But he's like, you need to know this out of the gate. He said, the very first thing that we are is that we were businessmen. That's it. And he's like, in a very distant second, he's like, you're a lawyer. And then a very you know, distant third after that is that you get to be a scientist, right? He's like a lot of folks in our profession, especially in IP, get it you know, out of order where you know, like an IP, everyone wants to be a scientist first and then a lawyer and then do business, right? And it just doesn't work for being able to develop a practice and to be able to develop a sustainable model where you can have a relationship with your clients where they can trust you to make reasonable decisions about this really important business asset that they have that can have a tremendous amount of value. But if you're only focused on the technology, it does a, a disservice because the value is really, what is the business value from day one? So I didn't take a job there, but that was some of the most useful advice that I've gotten. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of, you know, admired him from afar for having that mindset, but it's uncommon. I didn't want to be a lawyer, but just wanted to be an entrepreneur, but kind of knew I had to get through that three-year period. It was really mastering the craft of figuring out there's always two sides to everything. And the force thing that you know famously happens on the first day of law school where you have to take a side and then flip to the other side and you're constantly throughout each class being put in both situations makes you a master of both. And that has served me really well as an entrepreneur because I'm instantly able to put myself into the other person's shoes for a moment and understand where they're coming from, or be reminded, by the way, that there is another side to it. And I think it's a powerful skill, or I should say, thing to integrate into your unique ability, not just being headstrong that there's only one side. And I've, I've appreciated that as we've navigated helping our entrepreneurs navigate their businesses and see how unique of a perspective that's kind of ingrained into lawyers in particular. You know, I think a lot of the underpinning of entrepreneurship is being able to understand the other side. Mm -hmm. Dan famously, you know, with his questions of what are your dangerous opportunities and strengths? And that's another version of it when you're talking to adding value to somebody. But I think it's a really important skill that benefits anyone, anybody in business to kind of understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's move to the whole topic that you're specializing in basically new, better, and different things. In other words, it's the law about giving marketplace protection to new things, things that are different and things that are better. And hopefully all three are in the same package. So Steve, yours is entirely about new forms of health solutions, health transformation, the entire system. So the whole point, it's not just entrepreneurism in the sense that you're selling something that's been sold you know, for long periods of time and there's well-established markets, you're talking about entirely new value offerings and in some cases, entirely new markets. Yeah, I think healthcare is the opposite of shortcuts, right? It's every aspect of healthcare is like long cuts and everybody likes to take, and oh, by the way, for good reason, there's a lot of safety and a lot of things that do need to make sure they're 
validated and there's data and things like that. But I that was the lawyer talking. The lawyer just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out why. I'm seeing two yeah. Steves on yeah. Steve's shoulders here. Exactly. But, <laughs> you know, what's interesting is if there was ever an industry that was long on process and almost ingrained in how it operates, it's healthcare. And so it's almost the antithesis of how most academic and business people in healthcare have been brought up, which is nobody's looking for shortcuts. No one's looking for how to get something done quickly. It's always, of course, with safety, there's a way to do, you know, what is the shortest possible way to do it safely? And I think there's been, for us, a real important conversation from the very beginning, which is the mindset. Do they want to figure out how to accelerate innovation? And that's an interesting kind of thing. There's a lot of talk. And Dan, you've helped me think through this a lot around. There's been a lot of research and development for decades in healthcare. But there has been a disproportionate lack of commercialization and scale. Mm-hmm. So things getting out of the lab. And what we've seen is there's a wholesale silo in healthcare where research and development is separate from a lot of the commercialization scale because it's entrepreneurs and business people and companies that build and commercialize. And it's a lot of academics and scientists in industry that does research and development. And so can you break down the silos and bring them together? and bring shortcuts to help them bring more of the research into a place where it can commercialize and scale safely. And I think that for us has been a big breakthrough of seeing how our moonshots as major collaborations are cross-disciplinary, bringing entrepreneur-led innovation to research and development. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting rub when you start to look at and see how much innovation has not made it to commercialization scale to reach patients in healthcare. And so for us talking to entrepreneurs about shortcuts, you know, you see it it almost exploding their mind when you just bring up the topic of shortcut. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very similar Steve in the law, right? Mm-hmm. So we talk about the same like you know saying that healthcare moves slow, I think that the law actually might move slower, you know, I mean it just moves at a glacial pace, right? And most of our peers are 150-year-old, you know, law firms that have been around for so long that the decision-making process, their ability to be nimble is hindered by these like multi-generational systems and processes that don't get changed and don't advance with, you know, the normal rate of technology growth, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we're working with some of the most innovative companies in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, when I first started the firm, I actually had to be a little bit disciplined because I wanted to create like some technology tools like data science tools of our own. And we started to do that actually, but then I realized that I needed to either be like a law firm or, you know, like a legal tech company or something like that and not do both things. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up partnering with a company that made software that we beta tested for them for a number of years that has allowed us to, you know, kind of direct things at the patent office. Out of the 10,000 patent examiners that they have there, each of those have their own rate of allowance. Each of the tech center groups that they have, which is about 10 or 15 people, each of them has an allowance rate. Where like in e-commerce arts, it might be like 3 to 5% allowance rate, right? Yeah, explain the allowance. Yeah, right. So the allowance rate is that when you apply for a patent at the patent office, you apply for it and it gets filtered to a particular group of people at the patent office. They call them tech centers or art units. And that's usually like some between like five and 15 people. And they focus on a very specific area of technology, right? Like maybe they make 
there's like a catheters group or there's a aftermarket auto parts group, you know, or battery composition group or a sex toy group or whatever. There's, there's groups on all these things, right? And that's all they look at every day is those things. And so each one of these groups, though, has their own allowance rate associated with that. What's being allowed or disallowed? I'm, I'm trying to get a hand. So there's only two fates that a patent can have when we apply for it at the patent office, right? Two ultimate fates, right? One is that it becomes allowed. The other is that it becomes abandoned, right? And the national average for the allowance rate in the United States is like around 62%, meaning that 62% of patents that are applied for are eventually granted by the patent office, right? And then the other... 38% are just not a lot, right? And mm -hmm. so we wanted to be able to increase our chances and develop some data science tools based on publicly available information about the allowance rates of each of those groups at the patent office. And so we worked in conjunction with this other team to do that, beta tested this tool for them, and then got to the point where we could cut and paste uh, a patent application and it would predict where it was going to go at the patent office. And that was right maybe about 50% of the time at first, three, four years ago, it was right about 50% of the time. Now it's right about 75% of the time. And so as a result, and as a result of not having some of these multi-generational carryover concepts and tools that we couldn't get rid of, that we were able to kind of adopt some new tools and methodologies for approaching how to get patents for folks. And we have a a 99.3% allowance rate as a result. But I don't think it was doing anything that was rocket science or anything like that. It all seemed intuitive to us, right? And so, you know, that was a really quick example of like our own shortcut, really, that ended up kind of being an element of a platform that we use where, because we ended up using other things too, like tools at the patent office that allow you to get patents faster, right? And this is definitely worth bringing up that, you know, one of the things that you can do at the U.S. Patent Office is pay them a little bit more money and they'll give you a decision within a year where the normal rate of being able to get a patent is generally like three to five years, maybe even like three to seven years, depending on how long you have to argue with the patent office. You know, a patent examiner's job is, you know, kind of vetting the patentability of the patent application, right? And I'm using my language carefully, but basically they just say no, right? They say no almost always. And then we have to argue with them here at our firm until we come to some sort of agreement on whatever it is is patentable, right? Now, imagine that you're a patent examiner and you get a patent application today and you have the things in your head with which to reject the patent application today, or you have the things in your head with which to reject a patent application three to five years from now, right? When you pick that up. Inevitably, even though you can only use the things that happened before the filing of that patent application that were in the public domain, you still have three or five more years worth of knowledge with which to reject things. So the amount of arguments that you have before getting a patent on the normal path, the three to five year path is more. So you end up paying more money than you probably would have on the one year program, even though you had to pay the patent office a little bit of extra money because the amount of arguments is so much higher. So we keep track of all those statistics also. When we do the one year program with people, it averages like 1.6 arguments before an allowance, like where the national average is 3.2. So we're doing about half as many office actions or arguments with the patent office before getting it. And each one of those, you know, costs thousands of dollars. And so, you know, you end up saving some money doing that. Now, again, this isn't anything that was rocket science, but 
this is becoming more and more popular to do this for obvious reasons. Like they only allow 12,000 or maybe it might even be 15 now, actually, they may have just bumped it up to 15, but it's not any more than that, that they allow 15,000 like a year of those or something like that. And we've been filing a decent amount of percent of that, of those that are allowed in the United States. And so that's provided, you know, another opportunity to push things through faster. And that's what I think is driving that 93% overall allowance rate with some other philosophies. But then there's also like our clients as well. And this gets to what Steve was saying too, where just like with his clients, you know, and like in the tools and the shortcuts that they want to use, the things that we're teaching them, probably the most important thing that I think that we teach clients out of the gate is that don't just think of this as us going to protect. People always say this, like I'm getting this patent because it protects us somehow. Right. And I think that's almost the wrong language to use. What is the right language? Well, because when you go to get a patent, Steve, the thing is that it doesn't protect you from being sued by someone, right? But I think that that's the implication when we say that. We're going to go get a patent on this thing and now no one can sue me, right? It's not really true. In practice, what generally happens is it gives you the ability to stop others from practicing that, right? Like you are granted a a monopoly. It's a monopoly. A 20-year monopoly for patents. Right. Or you get a trademark, you know, for I think it's as long as it is that you're using that thing and that you're able to stop others from using it in whatever class it is that you're doing it. But for patents, you know, it's 20 years and you're granted a monopoly on that thing and you can stop others. That's the value Mm -hmm. of it, the liability that it creates for other companies, right? Mm -hmm. That you can then use for M&A purposes. You know, you can drive down the value of a company before you purchase it. You can drive up the valuation of your own company so that you can have a more favorable equity event down the road, right? Whether that's being acquired by someone or an IPO or whatever it is, right? So the point is, is that you want to use it as a reasonable business tool, but to get back to the protection thing, language is just so important, right? And you're protecting your innovation, but you're not protecting it from being able to get sued by someone else. You can probably still get sued by someone, but then the likelihood is though, is that someone's suing you for a technology that's similar to the thing that you have a patent on, there's a chance that you'll have a countersuit, right? Because you also have the similar technology and maybe, you know, they're also practicing this thing. So, you know, the easy targets are people that don't have patents when you have them because uh, there's less fear of a countersuit. You know, I mean, you just brought the mother load in the first 25 minutes because this is... Yeah, sorry, I went off there. I mean, with this one thing that you've created, you've basically defined... 50 other dimensions where you can use the same mindset to find where's the shortcut here, where's the shortcut here, where's the shortcut here? Because I want Steve to get his question in about the type of person that you're doing this for. But the thing that I'd like to get across here is that I think that you're approaching the whole business of IP in this fashion because I think you were a born and bred outlier to start with. I mean, your life history was that of an outlier. And you're simply taking an outlier's approach to a body of knowledge. And you're saying, yeah, I know that you have to go through all this stuff, but what's the 90% we can just bypass and just go for the 10%? Yep. Yeah. We want to get outcomes as fast as we can. We want to be high speed, low drag, right? And then also getting to the outlier. High speed, low drag. That's good definition of a shortcut. And, you know, in getting to what you were just saying too, Dan, about like being an outlier, 
for better or for worse, I learn from experiences, right? So that means, you know, sometimes it's easier for me to learn from my own experiences than it is for me to learn from the experience of others. Now, not that I don't do that, right? Because I, I certainly learn a lot from the experiences of others, but generally only if they have actual experience, not someone teaching me something that they've not experienced themselves, right? And so then we can, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say, and utilize the things that have worked well for people and then build upon them. And honestly, that was the whole goal, not to get too tangential again, but that was the whole goal of the patent system in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to reflect on that the next thing, because it's in the first article of the Constitution, Intellectual Property Law. Yes. It's before the Ten Amendments, actually, the provisions for IP. And we'll talk about that in the next one. Steve, just finish off this one by moving into the particular type of person, probably the particular type of customer out there, customer client, that you most enjoy. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Steve, did you want to add to that question? Or you just want no, to- no, perfectly said. Okay, good. Perfectly said. <laughs> My most enjoyable relationships are the ones that we can integrate with and grow closely with over time, right? And so we probably add the most amount of value though for clients that are in a fast growth trajectory, right? And so, I mean, we get people that come to us at the conception stage that they haven't even formed their entity or, you know, it's kind of a, you know, half-baked, like what it is that their value proposition is. But as we get to, you know, past like a, an angel seed, you know, into like an A round territory, right? Like then, especially when you're going to shop for an A round, that we can build a lot of value for folks just by having like a strategically curated IP plan that shows to any sort of investor that not only do we know our assets, our IP assets that it is that we have that they've spent the dollars on protecting, that also we know the liabilities, that we know the market well, we know what our competitors are doing, what it is that they're patenting, what valuations they're getting, what technology areas that they're operating in within our particular area of industry that we're focused on, that can really skyrocket. Mm -hmm. It's like when we go to show this to people, we get an overwhelming positive response. Mm -hmm. And then now there's even new tools out. There's a large insurance company called Aon that has the collateral insurance, an IP collateral insurance program that they've created where you can get a valuation on your IP portfolio and then you can take debt again, you know, 50% to value against your IP portfolio. And this has been a particularly useful tool for clients that they can basically almost use it as like a revolving line of credit, right? So we've had clients that have went, we had a client that we started with a year ago, they didn't have a lot of experience with IP at all. They had actually bought another company that we were representing. They bought a company we were representing and then that came with two patents that that company had. And then they wanted to learn more about it. We spoke to them about it. We helped them get and file like 45 new patent applications. And then they had several trade secrets, patents that we had not filed yet from like an invention harvesting session where we met with them and went over all their concepts and ideas and things like that, that maybe we want to patent in the future. Maybe we want to keep close to the vest. We would make that decision down the road. We went and approached Aon and they performed evaluation and they received a, in March of this year, we just started with them last summer. They received a $250 million valuation on their IP portfolio and are doing $125 million debt note with them that doesn't have to give up any equity of their company. It's not a traditional funding round. It's not VC debt. 
it's not, you know, VC equity. And there's, you know, there's a bunch of actuaries that have right. at least tried to convince them that this is a useful tool. Sorry, Steve, go ahead. <laughs> no, fascinating. I know we're out of time, but I'm not going to let you off that easy. If I said to you, I want to find you five clients, what is your ideal target client that you could be a hero to? And then we're going to start the next one with his answer. <laughs> ah, cliffhanger. No, no, no. I'm starting to learn, you know, I'll leave him panting for more, okay? So, <laughs> Keegan, lots and lots of things going off in my quick start brain here, my innovator brain about how I'm going to suck all the value out of you in free zone sessions. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we got the chance to talk even just today. Uh, Keegan, this is great. I, I have a lot of questions. Yeah, any, anyway, wrap up comment, Steve. Wrap up comment, Keegan, and then we'll wrap this one up and we'll go to number well, two. I've been in a number of free zone sessions with Keegan and I haven't yet had an appreciation for the depth of his approach and unique. I knew about his non-traditional background, but it continues to proliferate in his new business, this unique approach to everything that he does. And I think you're a unique intellectual property attorney, or you're practicing intellectual property law in a very unique way. Mm -hmm. And I think there is some simplification that could come to make it even more accessible to a lot of people. So I'm looking forward to the next episode of digging into some of that, because I think there's some real things, there's some doozies you threw in there that have massive potential impact to entrepreneurs and innovators everywhere. So it's been great, great to dig a little deeper with you today. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I would just add, you know, at the end here that one of the key take-homes of our conversation is that the key thing for any new entrepreneur pursuing IP, in my mind, is that you view it as a business asset. And it's one that should help you accomplish your business objectives. And if it doesn't do that, you shouldn't spend money on it, period. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Seems like every entrepreneur should have an IP plan, even if it's not to have a plan. That's right. Yep. It's true. And really, you know, in law firms, attorneys, advisors, they should be able to give that advice too. Why would the, the entrepreneur know more about IP and what to do with it than the practitioner, right? Like it shouldn't be the other way around. But unfortunately, a lot of people in my profession rely on the client to be able to make the decision of what they should do with, you know, the IP that they have, which doesn't make sense to me. Dan, what's your biggest thing? Yeah. First of all, I'm thrilled with the session one of this podcast series with Keegan Caldwell. He's the founder and owner of one of the fastest growing law firms and IP firms, certainly in America, maybe the world, probably the world. Steve Krein, who is thinking of which of his 380 entrepreneurial startups <laughs> is going to get the first benefit from what you've just shared with us, Keegan. So thank you very much. Thanks, Keegan. Thanks, Dan. Great seeing you both. Thanks, guys. Good to see you guys. Yep.